Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I'm Tobias Zimmergren, and I'm back again with Yussi Roine. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I've got some IoT updates. I, I think maybe five episodes ago, I did mention that, that with the new house, I obviously had to get a lot of new appliances. It's customary or traditional in Finland that, that when you relocate, you move from one house to another, you typically bring your own laundry machine and perhaps a dryer if you have one. But everything else, uh, the, the dishwasher, the stove, everything else is left in the old apartment. So when we moved in here, I knew I would have to get a new dishwasher, a new stove, a new microwave, a new laundry machine just for the household appliances and the wine cabinet and the fridge and the freezer. So I, I wanted to go with different brands for different needs. So I didn't just go to a store and say, give me everything from LG or Samsung or, or Meal or something else. So I sort of went one by one to figure out what the price point would be that I'd be happy with. And if there would be an IOT or a remote access angle for each of those appliances. So I've spent the past couple of weeks just configuring those. And it is insane depending on the type of appliance, even if the manufacturer would be the same between different appliances, depending on that, you either have to scan a QR code, which is on the side of the machine and the machine is already built into the wall. So you have to figure out how do you get the QR code or you need to download an application or like for my uh, air conditioning and, and, and air cleaning device, what I had to do, I just had to plug it into my network and it exposes an IP address with zero authentication that allows <laughs> you to access and configure everything. So I've been doing a lot of that. And the main key finding that I've, I've, I've been able to do was with the laundry machine. I got that one. I did the configuration. It pops up on my phone. And the thing that I can do now is when I turn on Let's do the, the dirty clothes. I, I turn it on physically on the machine. And then when I go upstairs to my living room, I can actually watch on my phone and if the animation showing that my clothes are being dried now or, or <laughs> what, what stage of the wash is happening. It's totally useless. I don't really need that. But even then I feel, well, it's, it's nice to have. And perhaps I paid 10 euro extra for this. It's a nice capability, I think. But I mean, there are some real use cases to this because I, I was thinking about the same when we got a new dryer and, and laundry machine, but we didn't get it at this point. And it's like when you're remote, when you're somewhere, or as me, I'm sitting in a different building and, and I cannot hear when the laundry machine beeps or anything like that. So for me, if I would get a notification on my phone saying, hey, you know what? You have five minutes left until the laundry is done that would enable me to kind of optimize and get more machines done during the day. But yeah, I mean, there's there's good use cases, but watching the animation for two and a half hours, maybe not. So on my side, I've done another kind of big cleaning of the house and storage to give away to charitable organizations and to people who need it. So it's it's pretty satisfying. The emotional reward of giving things away to those who really need it is always gratifying. And knowing that, you know, things get, put to good use while they're still usable makes a lot of sense from an environmental and sustainability perspective as well. And, and it does make you feel good. And I've always donated a lot 
of my fortunes. I've always contributed a lot to parts of society that may not have, you know, the the same kind of privileges as we have. So I I think it's a it's a very nice thing to uh, to give things away, especially if you do it in person to individuals you know really need it, and and you can really see how it makes their day. So I'm a happy camper with a lot of feel good vibes right now. So that feels great. At the same time, it's a very satisfying feeling to have a cleaned uh, storage as well, because you know how it is. You open a box. In the box, you have 59 cables, two laptops, maybe a keyboard, other uh, things like that. So uh, for me, that was clothing, some furniture, a lot of things in those random boxes with no labels, obviously. So I had to go through all of them uh, for computers that I donated. And then, you know, all the boxes with all the cables which came spun out of a discussion that we had in our last episode or prior to our last episode. I think we talked about uh, cleaning cables because I spoke about getting a new Raspberry Pi device and I didn't have a charger. So I I think we talked about that at some point. And that got me thinking, why do I even care about keeping all these things? So I reached out to um, a local coding for kids group where they have people who who cannot get laptops or hardware or uh, time or help at home to learn things around tech. So programming, development, stuff like that. So I gave four computers to them and all the boxes with all the cables so they can put that to good use as well. So hopefully those things can now be reused and and put to good use while I have a satisfying feeling for giving things away to good use, but also because, you know, less is more, the, the less things I have, the happier I am in the end. That's a, that's a good insight and definitely something I will be doing in the coming weeks, sort of after the move, cleaning up rest of the boxes, rest of the gadgets that I know I no longer need. So today we are talking about tackling DDoS attacks in Azure. So DDoS, Distributed Denial of Service. Per Wikipedia, it's described as incoming traffic flooding the victim originates from many different sources. So that's the distributed bits. Toby, have you been ever exposed to figuring out the DDoS attack? I trust you haven't initiated one. <laughs> perhaps <laughs> perhaps you've, you've done load testing, but that's a different thing. But any, any thoughts, insights on DDoS in general? Yes. So there are there's a few stories I could tell here. Uh, I'm not sure what parts of those stories I can and cannot disclose at this point. So I will refrain from doing that. Uh, what I can say is I have been involved active DDoS attacks. I've not been on the front line, so I've not been in charge of you know pushing the buttons to mitigate that. Uh, I have been in charge in uh, or been part of evaluating what happened, like a root cause analysis of what happened. So I've, I've seen these things in the field with pretty big impact, which is quite some years ago now, but I have not been on the front lines uh, actively mitigating them. So there's that angle. And then the other angle is, of course, you know, growing up, uh, experimenting with computers and programming and everyone had a modem, you know, there were botnets, but even back then, you know, in the, in the early 2000s or or late 90s, there were botnets, you could control other computers. We saw DDoS attacks happening already back then. Usually you could see DDoS attacks on the IRC networks, the the chat networks that was super popular in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
And then, then it was super common to attack those with DDoS attacks, essentially just flooding them with connections because there were no good protection at that point. Usually it was one server hosted in one location, no geo distribution, and no real firewall or, or kind of DDoS protection or mitigation uh, plugged in front of that. So you could bring down, and when I say you could, I, I mean that whoever did those things uh, could bring down an entire chat network with hundreds of thousands of users in, in a matter of seconds. Um, and that's a pretty small scale, right? And DDoS attacks today is a bit more significant or a lot more significant because it, it impacts not you know a, a chat network with a couple of hundred thousand users. It impacts retail, supply chain, healthcare, you know, all your mission critical workloads that requires you to have them online at all times for health and safety reasons and stuff like that. So the the impact today of DDoS attacks is vast. So it's it's a real threat that should not be taken lightly. So I, I know a lot about them. I have been involved, like I said, in in kind of the root cause analysis of what happened, diving into the logs, trying to figure out where did this originate, how how and, and where are these sources coming from and what type of connections are, are they trying to poke into the systems and, and what systems are affected. So pr- pretty interesting to work as an after the fact, because when it happens, you need to be quick and really like hit the button to mitigate. And, and whatever that button is, if that is a, an internal process, if it's a team, if it's your red team, blue team, or if it's you know your your operating center, your security operating center, uh, doing that, or if you have other processes around it, doesn't really matter. When it happens, ensure that you can quickly mitigate, then try to start figuring out why and and where and and how it's happening. So yeah, that that's the kind of background I have on that. This brings back memories when you mentioned the old chat networks and whatnot. I still remember from late 1990s. That, that the DOS attacks, uh, the denial of service attacks would often happen and the server would be down, you would have to find a different server. Perhaps a gaming server or gaming network went down because of this. It's a complex topic for sure and and I don't I don't claim to be a huge expert on this. Beyond on, on what happens on the Azure side, when you need to monitor and perhaps react to an attack. So if if there's a service you're running in Azure, uh, how would you figure out that somebody is actually attacking us beyond perhaps it's a web website and you try to open it from home and you, you figure, well, it's not opening anymore, so let me open Azure Portal to see what's what's happening. But but do, do you have something out of your personal experience on what would sort of be the first step either to, to get knowledge or information that an attack is currently happening or alternatively if you just happen to uh, see it yourself on what would be the sort of first step what should you do i mean i think that's a a great question and and to me you know coming from the business angle a lot I, i talk a lot about how to how to support the business cases and to me there's multiple ways here you can have uptime monitoring you could have you know, response time testing, which happens regularly to ensure that response times are within the intervals that you expect, which usually is a part of uptime testing as well. And you should always have that, regardless whether you have a, a plan to mitigate DDoS attacks or not, doesn't matter, right? And it's it's not a security feature. It's not something like that. It's just pure monitoring. Ensure you have proper uptime monitoring and a scope or an established baseline 
for what you expect in terms of response times. And if you have multiple regions, test all of them. And don't test them from a single service or from a single endpoint. Ensure that you test them from multiple geos, because if if one of them responds in one second, all of the others respond in five milliseconds, when, then the system is not down. There is just a glitch on the way in the network, which does happen. And we call those maybe transient faults or um, you know, there's latency on the network temporarily. So that's one thing I would consider. The other one is like anomaly detection in app insights, or uh, if you use Azure Monitor, could connect your apps to that. And then you can set up different types of alerts and some type of an anomaly detection around that. And then of course, which I think we'll talk about in this episode is like Azure DDoS protection, where you also can get detailed reports during an attack. And then you get a complete summary when that's done, when the attack has ended. And you can also stream mitigation flow logs to Sentinel or any other CM, uh, which is security information and management event uh, that you use. So there are varieties for staying on top of these things. Um, but but of course, it comes down to what kind of app are you using? What kind of service are you using? What perimeter security are you using? So if you use a public IP, an Azure public IP, for example, then there you can connect logs to that as well. So you can monitor those things. So there are different angles to uh, to that depending on what the app is and you know what kind of uh, service you have plugged on your perimeter as well. But 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 those are the things that come to mind. Really good insights, and I, I feel often when we talk about uh, perhaps DDoS attacks and and how do we shield from them or how do we mitigate the effect that primarily we, we would be talking about web endpoints. So those would be API endpoints, websites, web services, uh, and perhaps less on virtual machines or anything else that you typically shield differently so that you do not have public endpoints any longer, at least not something that would be accessible without proper authentication and authorization. So today, when we talk about WAF, we mean well-architected framework, for now, and a little bit later in the episode, when we talk about WAF, we mean web applications, firewall. <laughs> so, 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 hang on with us. What does WAF, well architected framework, say about this? So, we've done a couple of episodes on WAF already. So, let's not rehash the basics anymore. But the idea, which I feel WAF really gives a huge benefit, is that when you have a specific case or specific need like now how do we protect from ddos i can simply go to aka.ms/waf do a search on ddos and it gives me three pages and say well you need to read this so i can just pinpoint the exact information i need instead of trying to trawl through all the azure services and figuring out what's relevant for me today or is it relevant is it something i have to purchase from a third party so for WAF, there, there's a document, and the link will be in the show notes. There's a document for best practices for endpoint security. So endpoint, do not confuse this now with endpoint protection in the sense that we're talking about Windows workstations. No, we're talking about public endpoints. So what you need to do, you need to protect those uh, with Azure front door, which also implies web application firewall or application gateway if the traffic is something else than HTTP or HTTPS, or Azure Firewall if you perhaps need a third-party firewall system, or if you need specific capabilities from Azure Firewall, or finally, Azure DDoS protection. 
I wouldn't go with all of these. And what I see typically, both in in SMB clients, but also with with with, with large large enterprises, it's typically Azure front door with back. I see much less Azure Firewall, Azure DDoS protection. Not because they're not good, but often Azure front door is is very affordable and it gives you the capabilities you would need both for protecting the endpoints, but also protecting for DDoS attacks. Yeah, I, I think that rhymes with the experiences I have as well. And, and, you know, over the years, I've seen a lot of Azure front door deployments, and they are usually, not always, but usually connected to one or more policies with web application firewalls. So you can really more granularly control the endpoints. Uh, or, or what kind of traffic is allowed to flow through there, because then you get the bot protection and all these things like OWASP top 10 protection. So you get a lot of those things kind of built in if you use that. I don't, you know, I, I think the experience here is similar to yours. I don't see the same amount of Azure firewalls or Azure DDoS protection. But again, I think that also comes down to, uh, like you mentioned, the affordability or the price of those services. And as we've talked through many of these episodes around the well-architected framework, we always talk about the trade-offs as well, right? You can implement cost efficiency, which is a pillar in the framework. But if you do that, you might have to scale down on certain things to optimize the cost. But for security, you might need to scale up on some services uh, and go up some tiers from a standard or basic tier to the next tier in order to get the full protection that you consider that you need. But in doing so, you're no longer doing cost optimization according to all the checklists and the pillar, right? So there's always a trade-off. And I think that's what's happening here in real life as well for customers, where they say, well, Azure DDoS protection is awesome, but it's not something we need at this point. Maybe it's a small-scale website. Maybe it's a SaaS service that offers business-to-business solutions. And, you know, if it goes down due to a DDoS, it might not be the end of the world for that company, right? They can stand up some, you know, they can set up that protection. Meanwhile, they're under attack. They can remove the public endpoint to ensure that they don't get hit and they will have downtime. But that downtime for a lot of customers is not sensitive or critical. Um, it might break an SLA depending on what kind of SLAs you have with your customers. But most of the time they're not mission critical, which means they have to be up at all times. So I, I think that's also tying into it. So always keep this in mind as we talk about these things. It's one thing is affordability. Um, and, and that is a huge trade-off across all the kind of aspects and considerations you have when you make these design decisions. Agreed. Agreed definitely on that one. And sometimes what I do sort of encounter is that if there's a suspicion of a DDoS attack, it might be that the environment doesn't have any, any built-in capability on avoiding or blocking or mitigating that. There might be a web application firewall, and then there's the consideration, well, should we spin up Azure DDoS protection now or no? Because it's it's the need is right now, but perhaps not a month from now. Um, what the best practices sort of kindly point out before we move forward with this topic, it points out to implement an automated and gated CICD deployment process. Well, it's a given, yes. But at the same time, often you have front door, you have web application firewalls, you have the services in VNets. Some of those might have been crafted by hand or through an old ARM template. And there simply hasn't been a reason to automate that implementation any longer 
because it's been running for five years and everything is good. So I think it's a nice reminder to once again go back to the drawing board to figure out, okay, what if we need to rebuild some bits here and there, or if we need to change something in the architecture, can we do that in an automated and controlled fashion? Or is it back to going to Azure portal and, and clicking next, next, and hoping it finalizes in the next 60 minutes while the attack is ongoing? So perhaps we hop first to Azure DDoS protection, which is a service. I've deployed this once. Toby, how about for you? Is, is this something when you wake up in the morning, you have your cup of coffee that you just start tinkering with Azure DDoS protection, or is this something more exotic for you? I deploy one instance every morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I don't uh, have much experience with deploying this. I have, like I mentioned before, I've, I've seen it in the wild with live use cases, but I, I haven't deployed it myself because I haven't really had a use case for that in, in my previous life. So what the documentation says, it says you have a basic and a standard one. Uh, but when I went to Azure Pricing Calculator, I couldn't find the basic any longer. Uh, I went to Azure Portal. I started provisioning one. There's no basic available. Any thoughts on this? I, I haven't taken a look at the pricing for a long time, but if, if the pricing is removed, it would be a good thing, of course, because I mean, like I, I think we had a discussion of that at some point that security should not be an extra add-on from a cloud service provider. It should be all the security capabilities you have, you should just enable them. At the same time, that would waste a lot of resources if you don't use them. So, but if they would make this free, that would be great because you get two things, I believe, with the with the basic model, which is your active traffic monitoring and the kind of always-on detection and also automatic attack mitigation. So when an attack happens, DDoS Protection Basic can step in and say, uh-oh, something is happening, let's take action. And then of course, for the DDoS Protection Standard, you get a bunch of other things, but then you also have to pay the price for it. So my only thoughts around it is, well, if there is no pricing available, I would look, I would not assume it's free. I would carefully look, maybe even reach out to support and say, hey, will I get billed if I use this? Or is this now for free? Because if, if we cannot find clear guidance on that, I would rather ask the question first than go out and deploy it in the wild. But if it would be free or the price has changed or it's significantly cheaper, then I think this is a good point for a lot of customers to go take a look at it. Agreed. Um, on, on the basic one, I've deployed that maybe once or twice, mostly for testing. For the DDoS standard one, the pricing is about 3,000 euro per month. That's the fixed flat rate, plus if you have more than 100 resources that you want to protect, then you pay a little bit extra on, on each of those. But the good news here is that you only need one and you can share that across subscriptions as well. So you do not need to deploy one Azure DDoS protection standard per public service or per public endpoint. It's a singular service typically, but agreed it's still a sizable investment. It's what 36,000 euro a year that you commit just for avoiding DDoS attacks. So for me, this positions the whole service for enterprise usage only. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, makes sense. And it, it, I, I see this with a lot of services in Azure where 
where you, you go from a fairly cheap price tag or a consumption plan. And then when you activate like kind of the full cycle protection or the full cycle features, um, then it's a pretty hefty price tag. On the other hand, related to things I used to operate 2,940 bucks or, or whatever it was, uh, 3,000 uh, euros a month for something like this, if you need it, it's peanuts. Right, so it might look big if you operate a website that costs you 50 bucks a month, then then of course it doesn't make sense. But if you have a, a service or a company where you know the, the cost of operations is significantly higher, then this is probably a drop in the ocean, and you can optimize things in other areas to kind of compensate for those 3,000 euros if you need that. Indeed, um, for Azure DDoS protection. I'd, I'd, I'd say first look at Azure Front Door and Web Application Firewall. And these are not just for DDoS, for, for mitigating DDoS. They also include CDN, the Content Delivery Network, as well as the obvious firewall capabilities. So what I'm usually using in my architectures, I am starting with Web Application Firewall. And obviously now it, it pairs neatly with Azure Front Door. And as part of this, you can now use web application firewall, add your policies to, to block certain type of traffic. It's not inherently a DDoS mitigation engine in that sense. But what you can do, use this for is that let's block all traffic except the traffic we'd really like to get through. So I could allow my admin traffic as an example or I could allow all traffic from the home country of the company, assuming, of course, that the DDoS is, is not originating from the same country, but then you can do vice versa. So I feel with Azure Front Door and, and WAF, where the base cost is about $35 uh, for, for Front Door and about 30, I, I think it's $320 a month for web application firewall with the v2 version so for a fairly low cost you get a lot of functionality and even if you do not need to worry about ddos at all it typically means you still need WAF and you still need front door so you sort of get this added bonus of using these two for also mitigating ddos obviously you can later add the azure ddos protection if you feel that gives the added value. For the services, I, I think these are the core services. One thing to highlight still, which to me is it's it's obvious, but it's not always so when, when you look at implementations, is that whatever you deploy in Azure that you eventually want to protect, they should be bound to a VNet, to a virtual network. So if it's a web application, if it's an API, if it's a storage account, if it's a virtual machine, bind them to VNets, design your VNet architecture so that you can enforce how the traffic flows to the different pieces of the architecture and the implementation. This way you can leverage also Azure Front Door a little bit more because you can now take the content delivery network capability, the CDN capability to distribute, especially the static content globally through the Azure backbone to the edge network. And then whatever traffic is actually hitting your backend or your data layers or your APIs, it's much less at the same time. 
Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. It's a good advice. And I, I love this advice that always integrate with a VNet because that's, I've seen that in the wild a lot that people deploy uh, a service or a set of services or they find a template online, a bicep template, an ARM template, whatever it is. And somehow that makes it into development as is. And then somehow that moves on to staging and or they don't have staging and it moves into production. And there's no networking configuration. There is no uh, firewall enabled for storage accounts or, or key vaults or web apps, no access restrictions enabled, nothing like that. You just get the resources and you deploy them because that's what the templates does, right? You go to GitHub, someone did something, there's a template, you grab it and you deploy it. And I keep seeing this so many times. And, and over the last couple of years, this is something that keeps coming up where you see deployments from customers, you'd see deployments out in the wild that perhaps was not designed the way they're deployed, actively designed, that is. So it was not a design decision to say, hey, I want to deploy these things without configuring the network or perimeter security. But instead, we found a template, we had a proof of concept internally, and then all of a sudden we had a deadline and we needed to get something out. Okay, take everything and publish it, done. And then from there, moving the needle on, you know, enabling all these added infrastructure configurations becomes a bit more troublesome because you're already live. And I, you know, I've seen that so many times. So great advice. Whenever you set something up, start with networking because that is the core of whatever you deploy. And if you have a VNet, you can control a lot of things around it and you can connect it to, to different things. So that's pretty good. And I, I also think we have the, the side of mitigating DDoS attacks now that we we say that we use, for example, Azure DDoS protection. And what I really like here is like at the infrastructure level where the workload runs, Azure infrastructure already has this built in. There's already built in native DDoS protection. So whatever workloads you have, they're already protected. But, and and I think this is stated in the docs somewhere or in, or in, the, in the Well Architect framework, it says, that built-in kind of threshold allows for quite some traffic. And that can be quite a lot more than your web app or API or whatever it is can, can handle, right? So a DDoS attack doesn't mean that it has to be 500 million attempts uh, to access your site per hour or per minute. Uh, it can be 25 attempts per second. And that can bring your entire app down because you're using a small scale or a small tier that you deployed your app service to. So there, there are considerations around that. There's also the protection of the network layer, which is layer three. You get this added protection for services that runs in a VNet. So again, back to the VNet, start with networking, then you get added kind of um, protection that you can get for that. Another thing that I really like here from the Azure Well Architect uh, and, the, and the recommendations is DDoS protection with caching, right? CDNs they can add another layer of protection where a CDN kind of intercepts the traffic and then stops it from actually re reaching your backend server. So then Azure CDN, again, has this natively protected. So you use Azure CDN as your CDN provider, or you use any of the, you know, the big CDN providers that I think Azure supports, then you have those things built in. Just like if you use, I think we talked about this at some point, Cloudflare. I think we both use that for our sites. Whenever the site gets under attack, Cloudflare handles that, handles that for you. You don't need to go in and mitigate and do things. What you can do is click a button saying my site is under attack to kind of start the investigation or block the traffic. So thinking about CDNs is important for advanced DDoS protection. You know, in your security baseline, you can consider features with monitoring techniques that use machine learning to detect the anomalous traffic 
and then you can proactively protect your applications before service degradation even occurs, in theory, hopefully. And I think the recommendation out of this is kind of to identify the workloads that you have that are susceptible to DDoS attacks, and then enable DDoS mitigation for all the critical web apps and services that you have that have exposed endpoints. So it always comes down to, to you, of course, to, to make that active choice, knowing, oh, I have these endpoints, and here I might need to have added DDoS protection. And I think that brings us back to the, not the previous episode, but I think two episodes ago, we talked about the Defender that could, I can't remember the name of that now, uh, from the top of my head, but the, we talked about this thing that can find exposed devices on the internet, publicly facing devices on the internet. So imagine you would run that tool to find everything you have exposed with a public endpoint as an inventory for your company. And then from there, you can also start realizing, all right, some of these things are really mission critical or sensitive. We should consider plugging in advanced DDoS protection for this uh, or, or you know, think about DDoS mitigation. So there's a lot of ways around this. And, and in, there's no, no one solution that says deploy Azure DDoS standard or basic, and then you're done because everything depends. Like how many endpoints do you have? How are they distributed? Are they all running in the same subscription tenant? And if not, can you still protect them using one instance? Do you need multiple instances? How do you handle that? Where do you ship the logs? Do you ship all the logs to the same CM or do you need multiple CMs? I mean, there's always considerations and, and kind of trade-offs around these, what I would call critical design decisions. But it's, you know, when, when you've already made it this far, I think it, it's okay to just get started and then you can change things as you go. You don't need to have the perfect architecture from day one. Again, that's a trade-off. If if you would wait until you had a perfect architecture, and again, never going to reach the goal. So so that that's top of mind for me. What I would think about uh, if I did these things. Really good stuff. And the service we were talking about maybe two three episodes ago was the Defender External Attack Service Management, and I'm actually looking this up because I cannot <laughs> yeah. recall the full name. It was Defender ESM and ESM. something something. Yes. <laughs> One last bit before we move on to the unexpected question is, once you've mitigated the DDoS attack and, and it sort of goes back to normal, you need to retain the logs. All of your logs are typically stored in a log analytics workspace and they will not be there eternally. So figure out what do you do with those? What I do, I extract them, export them, uh, perhaps as a JSON file or CSV, and then store them someplace secure, typically a different Azure subscription in a different tenant. And the reason for this is that if you, at a later time, if you need to go and investigate, perhaps there's a local government recommendation that if something like this happens, you should ship those logs to a central authority so that they can do statistics and perhaps investigate. And my findings based on this, and this is a lengthy topic, so perhaps we revisit this in a future episode. My understanding and experience on this is that Azure Portal and the Log Analytics Workspace query tool are fairly limited because you often have a lot of data. You might have tens of millions of rows of data. And in Azure Portal in a browser, it simply doesn't scale. So. Two top of mind tips here. One is use Azure Data Explorer. It's a separate portal. It's free of charge by default. 
the other uh, option is to create a quick custom application in Azure AD, grant permissions to read stuff from Log Analytics, and do a couple of queries from curl on the command line or spin up a quick PowerShell script to pull everything to the client side. Again, it depends what do you want to do with the logs. Toby, anything you want to add on this topic before we move on? Uh, yeah, I, th I think there's one thing. And as with everything, um, because we also talked about a lot of these things in the past, we talked about Azure load testing, and I think you mentioned that in this episode as well. But Azure load testing is not a real DDoS testing capability in, in that sense. And one thing is that you need to test your DDoS protection, right? You, you don't just deploy the service and then say, all right, we're good to go. Have a good day. Bye. Because if you then get an attack and then this is not configured correctly or deployed correctly, uh, you know, it may not have uh, kind of the protection or the effect of the protection may not be what you desire. So it's important to test it as well. And uh, I think there is, um, like, if you go to the documentation of Azure DDoS Protection Standard, um, and I think this is in the standard tier, uh, or I'm not sure if it's actually tied to the tier, but it, it's listed under the standard. You can test with simulation partners. And with a simulation, that means you can have different services or a company. So there's um, currently two listed things that you can do for testing this. One is breaking point cloud, and that's a self-service traffic generator where you and your customers can generate traffic against DDoS protection enabled public endpoints for simulations. Essentially saying, okay, this self-service thing, I'm gonna point it to this site or to this API and it's hammer time. And then it's gonna launch a distributed denial of service attack on that site to simulate. Um, so that's pretty interesting. So you have this option to really test things out so you don't just enable it and then forget about it, like a fire and forget deployment. And the other one is called Red Button. So you work with a dedicated team of experts and then you simulate uh, simulate real-world DDoS attack scenarios in a controlled environment. And I, I really like these things because uh, the, the benefit of doing that is, of course, many. But one is you can validate how uh, Azure DDoS protection helps you protect your resources. Uh, you can optimize your incident response process while under DDoS attack. So you're a security operating team uh, and your incident response teams and, and everyone involved can really figure out what's going on. And I think this is a good place. If you haven't got the structure in place in your company for these things, running one of these simulations is a very powerful way to figure out that, oh, crap, we don't have our things in order. Or who's doing what? Okay, it's happening right now. Who's doing what? I don't know my responsibility. This is super common in, in many organizations that you have an incident and you don't know who to talk to. You don't know who to turn to. It's happening right now. Am I gonna fix it? Are you gonna fix it? Someone else gonna fix it? Am I gonna wait for someone to reach out? What's the process? That is one of the core things you have to figure out in the organization, not just deploy the technical architecture around mitigations. Because if you don't actually take action the correct way as a business, then you're going to forego a lot of the benefits you have of implementing any technical solution. Um, it also helps you, of course, to DDoS um, and document your DDoS compliance. And this is also a great opportunity to find the gaps and kind of train your network security teams uh, as you identify that, okay, we just simulated a network uh, incident with a DDoS attack, but we didn't know what to do. 
or we found a couple of gaps in things we didn't mitigate or didn't look at or overlooked when when this happened because it can happen real quick uh, so so it's a it's a great opportunity for like additional training and figuring out where to start so that that would be my kind of final advice after you set it up after you figure out and identify okay here's my public things that i want to to uh, protect for whatever reason after you've done that figure out how to test it and test not just the tech to say okay ddos protection said you were under attack but we took care of it but also what is the business process around that and if you don't know talk to someone who might know and if nobody knows set some type of standard to try and establish those processes because those will help save you when the time comes that you need it really good stuff i promise not to add anything to this because i i think there's a lot of information already shared make sure to check the show notes because we will be adding links to everything all, all, all the tools and all the documentation we mentioned in here the last bit before we wrap up this week, the unexpected question, Toby, based on my bookkeeping, which is not super sharp, but I think I can rely on this this week. It is your turn to ask me the unexpected question. Okay, I, I think I have one that can be fairly, fairly interesting. It can become a, a real fun game as well. Well, let's let's do this once here. Um, what movie completely changes its plot when you change one letter or one word? word in its title and then what's the new movie about interesting question i've i've seen something like this ages ago that that people people had great ideas and what i perhaps want to lean into uh i've always loved the original star wars movies you know the the first one that came out in 1977 i was born in 1977 so perhaps that's why i'm fond of the movie as well so my response would be tax return of the Jedi, because it's also the tax return season here in Finland. So you're always a little bit worried. Are you paying back something to the local tax office or are they giving you money back? And this probably becomes the may the IRS be with you sort of a movie. Okay, yeah, fair enough. That's a good movie title. All righty. Thank you for joining us this week. Have a nice week.